This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas A&M University, where public health experts are working to prepare for the next pandemic. Learn about the five strategies at today.tamu.edu. And the Travel Technology Association represents the leading innovators in travel technology. Learn why we oppose HB 2889, a new tax on travel services at the worst possible time. More at traveltech.org. And the Invest Texas Council believes private investment and innovation can help Texas infrastructure keep pace with population growth and economic development. More at investtexascouncil.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TripCast for May 12th, 2021, less than three weeks till the end of the 2021 legislative session. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week we are joined by politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Who is Hello. on mute? There she is. <laughs> um, demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello. Hello. Um, before we get started, I'm going to say a quick message, which is that if you like this podcast, you will probably also really enjoy the Texas Tribune Festival, a celebration of all things politics, policy, and current events in Texas. And we have just recently announced the dates for this year's festival, Virtual Fest, it will be. Um, mark your calendars to join us virtually from September 20th, my wife's birthday, to September 25th. Come for the big names and stay for a mix of panel discussions, interviews, and lively one-on-ones on the topics you care about the most. Sign up for Fest updates and learn more at texastribune.org slash subscribe. My poor wife, she's born on Texas Trib Fest week every year, and we got married on Memorial Day weekend, so every two <laughs> years our anniversary is ruined too. So, Shout out to Matthew's wife. <laughs> Anyways, that is not what we are here to talk about. (laughs) What we are here to talk about is that we are in the home stretch of the legislative session, where we're in that point of time where the calendar can kill a bill just as much as opposition among members. And as we sit here, we're about 36 hours away from the Thursday night deadline for the House to pass bills that uh, at least aren't on the local and uncontested calendar. Um, Today, I want to run through a couple of the big bills still making their way through the the session and then talk a little bit more about big picture, what's happening uh, in in the Capitol these days. First up, I want to talk about the voting bill, SB7, which, believe it or not, was passed out less than a week ago. I could have sworn that it was like, you know, late April or something when that happened. What is time? I I believe what around like six in the morning, Alexa, when that happened? I got I got home at 5 a.m. But the vote ended up happening just past 3 a.m. because all good things happen after 3 a.m. Apparently. Gotcha. We've been having a lot of those late nights in the House lately. So it has passed the House, passed the Senate, and we assume, right, heading for conference committee, although that has not happened yet, Alexa. Yes, um, you know, a bill that was originally written to ban intentional voting in the middle of the night has now been passed out of both chambers in the middle of the night. Um, you know, the House approved a significantly rewritten version of the original Senate legislation. In committee, they basically wiped out everything that was in the Senate's version of the bill, replaced it with House Bill 6, which is 
pretty different. Um, it doesn't go as far as SB7 did in restricting voting. It doesn't touch as much of the voting process as SB7 did. Um, and then, you know, after a very, very lengthy set of negotiations throughout the day last Thursday and into the early hours of Friday, uh, the House basically rewrote it again and essentially, from what we can tell so far, watered down a lot of the provisions that were in the bill, uh, specifically when it comes to protections for poll watchers. There was a provision in there um, regarding assistance where people had to disclose why someone needed help um, to vote. And that had been that had raised some legal concerns by advocates for people with disabilities and um, civil rights folks who had said you can't treat people who get help differently than you treat other voters. That was pulled off in a series of very quick amendments around 3 a.m. Uh, Friday. And so now you've got an, a second time this bill has been rewritten. It's going back to the Senate. And I would be shocked if this didn't go to a conference committee just because of how different it is and just because of how you know, in some ways watered down it is compared to the starting point for something like this and for a priority bill that, you know, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has, has framed as wanting to, you know, protect the quote unquote election integrity um, and doesn't really do any of the things they initially sought out to do with it. Right. So as you noted, just because it was watered down in the House doesn't necessarily mean that the finished product version will be watered down. What are what are the kind of key differences here in terms of like what are they going to have to decide in conference committee about about what to include and what not to include? I mean, the, the only thing that's in both bills right now or in both versions of the bill, though it's written differently, is a ban on sending out vote by mail applications to everyone. You know, the, the one thing that the House and Senate has come together on is uh, screw you, Harris County. We don't like that you did this last year. Um, you know, but I think what they're going to have to decide is do they bring back some of these things in the original Senate legislation, things that, you know, restricted early voting hours, it sort of regulated the distribution of polling places, but only in the big urban counties, the majority of which are obviously under democratic control and have been favoring Democrats politically. Um, you know, there's a sort of very, very wide range of proposals in the Senate version that aren't in the House. And I think the question here is, are the House conferees going to hold the line? Um, and how much is the Senate, particularly Dan Patrick, willing to push for some of these broader restrictions that were in the original legislation? There's been really no sort of signaling on this front. The only thing we've gotten so far is Senator Brian Hughes, the author of the bill, saying, you know, this is going to be a quote collaborative effort. So, uh, you know, some signal of maybe some uh, compromise between the two bills. But at this point, we could theoretically end up with a massive bill that includes both bills, that includes the language from both versions of the bill. Um, you know, we're just going to have to sort of wait and see at this point. Yeah, and some of this, you know, the the kind of gutting or watering down of the bill in the House was was seemed to be part of kind of a strategy by Democrats, right? Where where they raised a procedural challenge on the bill that could have kind of endangered it, sent it back to committee during a time where there's not a lot of time to, um, you know, be voting things out of committee and getting them back onto the calendar before the Thursday deadline that we mentioned earlier. 
Uh, but it was a risk, right? Because as you said, like if, if they don't have much of a role in the conference committee, this, this is a conference committee that I think we can safely assume will be controlled by Republicans. The, the sponsor of the bill, the, the chair of the elections committee in the House is Briscoe Kane, one of the most conservative members of the House. And so, I mean, kind of part of what we're going to have to watch and see right now, right, is, is whether this, this strategy by the Democrats to affect this bill, you know, has any effect, whether it works or not. Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting that they seemingly cut a deal on this bill, a, you know, a week out from the House deadline to pass House bills, but they still had quite a bit of time for the Senate right. deadline. And this is ultimately a Senate bill. Um, but, you know, seemingly they had a point of order on it. I think it's like the longest point of order that I've at least experienced in the House. They even like went at ease and like eventually pulled down the bill. Um, so a signal that maybe it was a pretty good point of order if it brought people back to the negotiating table. The Democrats had 130 plus amendments ready to go to sort of fight this down. You know, I do think that with the revised language, obviously it pulls some sharp objects off the table that, you know, civil rights folks had really raised as problematic in the bill. So in that regard, it's a win for them. But I think, you know, I don't know that someone like Briscoe Kane doesn't want what the Senate wants or had in the original bill, right? Like, what does that actually look like in conference? Does he stick with sort of the instructions of the House and what they wanted? Or does he go with the Senate Republicans on some of these more restrictive things that he may or may not personally support? Um, you know, I think obviously most of this will be behind closed doors, but it'll, I think the final product will maybe speak volumes for how that went. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about the debate on the House floor that night? I mean, there was there were definitely some heated exchanges there and, and, and Kane, you know, uh, taking a lot of, uh, uh, you know, feeling a lot of pressure from the Democrats during that that talk. Yeah, you know, for for as long as that day was, the debate itself on the floor was actually pretty short just because it was cut short by that point of order. And then when they came back at 3 a.m., they hardly said anything. <laughs> I think at the end, Briscoe came was like, members, it's 3 a.m. <laughs> like, just vote on this. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think there the setup to this, though, you know, we we heard, as we often hear in these debates from Democrats who pointed out the multiple findings of intentional discrimination by the courts against lawmakers when it comes to voting bills and redistricting, right? We, this framing of how this could hurt voters of color who came and testified before the committee on HB6, which was now the language that was in SB7, you know, that was like a seven, it was like 17 hours of testimony. And you had a lot of poll watchers who were there in support, but a lot of advocates for voters of color who were pretty concerned about the bill. And so you saw a lot of that. I think probably the moment that most people have watched is um, a moment between Briscoe Kane and state rep Rafael Enchia, which he sort of zeroed in on language of the bill that focused on, you know, the pure, ensuring the purity of the ballot box, which is pretty loaded language um, historically in how it's been used to uh, discriminate against black voters, especially, but just generally voters of color. Um, Briscoe Kane said he pulled that from the Texas constitution, but I, I think that moment was sort of emblematic of how a lot of these conversations go where, you know, Briscoe said, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that history. And the Democrats are on the other side 
sort of pointing to that in terms of the legislature's past actions and the context in which today's actions occur. But, you know, with the votes there, it didn't really matter. And it, you know, I get why the Democrats do this, right? It's their fight, but from the beginning, everyone knew how this was going to end. Um, and so it was kind of a weird debate in that way. Patrick, what do you think about kind of the political realities here? I mean, I think we can all agree that the Republican leadership in the state feels the pressure from their voters, um, from the activist wing of their party, especially to have some kind of voting bill get out of the legislative session. How much do you think the kind of nitty gritty details of what the conference committee spits out will have a political impact or, you know, affect that pressure? Uh, you know, once a bill comes out or, or is it just a matter of being able to say like, look, we passed, passed something here to, to address these concerns? You know, I think as far as Governor Abbott is concerned, um, he named this an emergency item, but he didn't offer too many detail, really any detail in his state of the state speech in terms of exact restrictions or new provisions that he wanted to see the legislature pass. He ultimately, um, you know, in some interviews after his state of the state speech, he said that Senate bill, uh, the previous Senate bill that I don't think advanced last session was a good starting point. Uh, but beyond that, at least in public, um, you know, he hasn't drawn a lot of, uh, you know, red lines in terms of uh, what he wants in the bill that makes it to his desk. Um, now, of course, his, you know, his office and, and he could be working behind the scenes to say, I want this, I don't want that. Um, but he hasn't been particularly outspoken um, about the details of this bill, even though it is an emergency item of his. All right, well, another hot button issue that is, you know, coming down to conference committee, it seems like, is the issue of permitless carry, constitutional carry, as supporters of it call it, basically, this, this legislation to allow for the permitless carry of handguns in Texas. Uh, Patrick, you've been following this bill. It has been, you know, kind of followed the reverse trajectory, passed out of the House to the surprise of some after failing in previous sessions. Then there was a lot of question about whether it would make it through the Senate. It did with some amendments. And now the question is, you know, will the House and Senate be able to come together on a on an agreed version of this to get it out? What's what's the latest there? Yeah, so the Senate passed this out, but not before amending it in some pretty uh, substantial ways and ways that senators say were uh, to try to address concerns from law enforcement groups. Um, you know, one of the amendments, for example, was in enhancing the penalty for a felon who's caught carrying under this uh, under this law if it were to go into effect. Um, and these amendments, by all accounts, um, were critical to getting the uh, bill through the Senate. Um, as you recall, I mean, you know, two weeks, maybe less than two weeks before this passed the Senate, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said that they didn't have the votes. And so they were able to pull together the votes and pass it, obviously, but these amendments are pretty key to it. Uh, and now as it heads back to the House, um, you have some folks in the House and some activists on the outside of the Capitol saying that these amendments may pose some procedural issues and may make um, the bill uh, vulnerable to a point of order in the House. Um, and we're waiting to see what happens uh, when this hits the House floor. Again, obviously the House is gonna have the option to accept these amendments or to go to a conference committee. Um, and so even though it, it's pretty remarkable and notable that uh, this proposal has gotten this far this session after languishing uh, in previous sessions, it's still uh, you know, not a done deal. And I think they're gonna have to um, you know, find some compromise on all these, uh, these amendments that were tacked on in the Senate, um, which again, 
you know, raises the question of, you know, whether it, it could get the Senate's kind of sign off again, because these amendments were so critical to getting it through the Senate in the first place. I think many of us saw that once it passed the House, you know, that we, we saw the biggest hurdle to getting it through would be getting it to the Senate floor, right? Because right. you need 18 votes, there's an 18 vote, uh, or Republicans have 18 uh, senators in the Senate. And there was, you know, there were concerns about law enforcement. Dan Patrick came out and basically said that that he didn't at the time have the votes, but they they cleared that hurdle, and 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 we thought maybe this was heading forward. Are you seeing concern from supporters? Is are they expressing worry at this point? I mean, there is still plenty of time, you know, to get a conference committee and and, and reach an agreement. Is, do people view this as in peril at this point? In peril may be a bit of an overstatement at this point, um, but for example, you had the House author of the bill, Matt Schaefer, say that uh, on first glance, he was, I think, quote, very concerned or something like that, um, that this could be vulnerable to procedural objections uh, with these new amendments on it. And so you are seeing actual concern, whether it's in peril, whether they think it's, it's you know, dead, which is, of course, always a risky term to use around this time of session, especially. I don't think I'm, I'm ready to, you know, accept that yet, but I think there are some real concerns out there um, and we're just going to have to see, uh, you know, kind of where it goes. There have, you know, some of these people who are raising these concerns aren't exactly saying, you know, what amendment or amendments are problematic. They're just kind of vaguely hinting at um, this bill as amended in the Senate, potentially, um, you know, being vulnerable to uh, procedural objections. All right, well, we will keep an eye on it. Let's take a quick break to talk about or to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the legislative session. Texas Employers for Insurance Reform. Help Texas Employers for Insurance Reform stop HB 1919 before it increases prescription drug costs and hurts small businesses and patients in Texas. More at teircoalition.org. And Lone Star College. Lone Star College now offers bachelor's degrees in nursing, cybersecurity, and energy and manufacturing that are affordable and close to home. More at lonestar.edu. All right, so I'm going to read a tweet from our CEO uh, here. Oh, God. <laughs> the eye, yeah, the, our, our podcast listeners cannot see the eye rolls going on here. This was from our boss, Evan Smith, yesterday. This is my 15th Texas legislature. And it is hands down, not even close, the most conservative session I've ever seen. No one on this podcast right now uh, has been around for 15 sessions, so we can't really answer this uh, very well. But but what do you think, Cassie? Uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, not just Evan, remarking about how conser how how conservative you know some of these bills coming out of the legislature, or at least advancing in the legislature, not coming out yet, have been. Uh, do you agree with this assessment that it has been a, a particularly conservative session so far? Um, you know, I definitely see the merit in such a statement. Um, if you're looking <laughs> at... <laughs> so diplomatic. <laughs> so, so diplomatic. That's Cassie. <laughs> uh, if you're looking at just kind of what the House has passed over the past couple of weeks, you know, permitless carry, arguably the biggest gun uh, measure uh, that's passed in recent years, mm -hmm. um, a pretty big abortion bill, uh, Senate Bill 8, mm -hmm. uh, critical race theory 
uh, House Bill 3979. And then you've had a bunch of, um, you know, defund the police related types of bills, anti-protester legislation, the camping ban bill. Um, so if you're looking at all that, of course, yes, definitely uh, can can make an argument that as as we've kind of entered the home stretch of session here, and if you're looking at this, particularly on the House side, that uh, some pretty conservative pieces of legislation have been passed out of there. Um, I think it's also worth noting just for context purposes that, you know, going into this session, we were lawmakers and, you know, us included, we were talking about the budget shortfall, about the coronavirus pandemic, uh, about redistricting. Well, redistricting has been pushed off into the fall. Uh, the budget ended up being something that was able to come together, uh, you know, pretty comfortably, right, given the, the updated economic forecast from uh, Comptroller Glenn Hager. And, you know, the pandemic, uh, you know, as vaccines have continued and whatnot, it's just, you know, we've seen the two chambers relax their, their, their COVID protocols and, you know, have passed in the meantime legislation related to, you know, let's just take HB3, for example, which was passed out of the House earlier this week, kind of outlining, a, you know, um, you know, next steps to be taken by the state should another pandemic come. So, that's kind of my brief take on it. And maybe I'm not giving you as clear of an answer as you would perhaps like on whether I agree with that statement. But, um, you know, I don't think that you can argue against the fact that there's been some pretty uh, red meat issues coming out of the house over the past couple of weeks. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my assessment on this is that, you know, we, for the time that those of us have been here watching the legislative session, the House and the Senate have kind of had their different roles, right? And the Senate is where, you know, being led by Dan Patrick, a willingness to take on some of these hot button conservative issues. Some of them will get through in the House and others will kind of cool off and disappear or fade away, uh, you know, under uh, Joe Strauss in particular, the more moderate Speaker of the House up until two sessions ago. But even so, you know, in some to some extent under Dennis Bonin too, you know, his one session as Speaker, we saw uh, you know, everyone kept calling it the bread and butter session, right? It was it was property taxes, it was it was school finance, things that uh, you know are important and and in a lot of ways important to to Republicans and, and the Republican base, but not necessarily the kind of culture war issues we're seeing right here. I mean, Patrick, you had a story last week talking a little bit about Abbott's showing a, a more of a willingness to engage in some of these issues right now. Is uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that story was about how, you know, he, uh, you know, in some ways has been a little more forthright in the middle of this session as these debates are going on in sending signals or just coming out in support of some of these hot button issues, whereas in past sessions, some of these lawmakers were left to kind of guess where he was in all of this. So, I mean, a few examples we cited, we cited in the story was him coming out and saying he would sign a permitless carry bill if it got to his desk, him coming out and, uh, you know, not just saying he would sign, but but cheering on, uh, you know, this very restrictive uh, abortion uh, uh, legislation that's been making its way through the process, the one that's referred to as a heartbeat bill by uh, supporters of it. And then him also saying that he would, uh, you know, sign a, a bill that would ban uh, transgender kids from participating in, uh, you know, public school sports that correspond with their uh, gender identity. Um, and so, you know, these are all issues that are, you know, you know, simmering right now um, among, you know, some of the, the farthest reaches uh, on the right, 
And so he's made pretty clear where he is at on those issues, uh, perhaps in a way that he hasn't in last session where, you know, lawmakers, some Republican lawmakers have complained or grumbled at least that, uh, you know, he, you know, is not taking clear public stances on some of the most controversial issues. Um, and I, I think that that has helped set the course um, for the kind of conservative um, ending to this session that we're seeing, um, you know, these, you know, it obviously always helps, you know, to know that the governor um, is going to sign a bill, um, you know, in terms of making a decision whether to move it along in the legislative process. Yeah, and of course, it remains to be seen, right, because most of these bills that we're talking about have have been notable in how they have advanced, but they have not reached the governor's desk, too. So there's there's still plenty of opportunities for the narrative of this session to change. Yeah, I think that's the, the thing, you know, I said earlier that it was sort of weird to watch this like debate on the floor between Democrats and Republicans on the voting bill with the Republicans really having the votes to do basically whatever they wanted. And I, I think what's been slightly different about this session is that they've always had the votes, right? And they've honestly had bigger majorities and bigger sort of margins to rely on, at least at election time. And that has been narrowing over the last few years. And it's sort of weird because you, you're you at a point where like they still control all of government. They still have clear majorities to push through whatever they want. The political part of this, the, like the election time part of this is the thing that's changed. But I, you know, and so I think this like narrative about the most conservative session feels like it's part in part uh, in service to that, though obviously redistricting is coming up and they can shore up a bunch of these districts that maybe they were worried about before. Uh, but a lot of it feels like it's in service of that because you know the, the majorities haven't changed, the ability to pass basically whatever they want hasn't changed, but the political part of this has. Um, and I, but I, I, th I think you're right. I think it remains unclear or unseen to, will this narrative really hold up once the governor is actually signing bills that made it to his desk. And I think that's where the next few weeks will be particularly interesting. Yeah, and Patrick, you made this observation, other people have made this observation too, that the, the 2019 session was a session in which the people were looking ahead to 2020. And, and at the time, the, the makeup of the house in particular, the state house was in doubt, right? And people thought maybe Democrats had a chance of flipping the house. That obviously didn't happen. Uh, they Democrats didn't even gain a seat. And now we're looking towards the 2022 election in which you know, a lot of people think that that's a big opportunity for the Republican Party up and down the ballot. You know, it's a midterm election, Trump not on the ballot. Uh, you know, the, the, the party in power, the party that holds the White House often, you know, loses seats during that session. So, so some of this could just be, uh, you know, what election is looming driving, you know, what the the lawmakers, the leadership of the party feel like they need to emphasize and, and face. Yeah, in some ways, the, the political incentive structure is, is totally flipped from where it was at in, in 2020, when if you were a Republican elected official in Texas, uh, you were more concerned about the general election than you probably had been in recent memory. Um, now, for all those that context that you just provided about where 2022 is, is positioned historically, um, you know, if any Republican, you know, state lawmaker, or statewide official right now is concerned about the next election, they're concerned about the primary probably versus the, the general election. And so um, 22 is, you know, shaping up, I think, to um, be just, a, you know, provide different incentives for the policymaking this session than the 2020 election did uh, in the previous session. 
Well, speaking of primaries, we did get one 2020 bit of 2020 election news, 2022 election news uh, earlier this week, which was uh, former state Senator Don Huffines throwing his hat in the ring for the Republican primary for governor. Patrick, tell us a little about him and, and what his, you know, uh, uh, decision to join that race means about the dynamic. Right, yeah, so Don Huffine served one term in the, in the state Senate. He was defeated by a Democrat, Nathan Johnson, in 2018 in, in a race that ended up not being even that close. I think he, he lost by uh, high single digits. Um, he, you know, in the Senate, he was uh, you know, stridently conservative, um, you know, probably more conservative than that, the district that he represented, which you know, was when he, when he won it, was trending toward Democrats, and under Donald Trump, uh, trended uh, even more toward Democrats. Um, and it wasn't too much of a surprise that he'd uh, get into this race against Abbott. Um, you know, he's been part of this band of, uh, you know, Abbott's intra-party critics over the past year that have included people like Jonathan Stickland, like Shelley Luther, like Matt Rinaldi. Um, you know, he's been part of that group. Um, he's been critical of the governor's uh, pandemic, uh, pandemic response. Um, and, you know, for example, he spoke at the, you know, same protest, open Texas protest outside the governor's mansion last fall that Alan West, uh, you know, kind of notoriously spoke at as well. And so not terribly surprised to see him jump into this race. I think the big question now is, is how much company he gets in this primary, whether, um, you know, Alan West uh, decides to run, whether Sid Miller decides to run. Um, it could end up being a, a pretty crowded race. And, um, you know, while I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, Don Huffines on his own is a, you you know, creates a formidable opposition to Greg Abbott, um, you know, things could get dicey if you have, you know, three credible challengers in there, um, because Abbott, you know, would obviously need to clear the runoff threshold of 50% um, to avoid going to a runoff. And we know in, in Texas, uh, especially in kind of the Republican primary environment, runoffs can be kind of dicey for incumbents. Indeed. Well, we, I think how things play out over the next few weeks could influence the, the tenor of that debate for sure. Absolutely. We will leave it at that. Uh, thank you to our producer, Justin. Thank you to Cassie, Alexa, and Patrick. And thank you to our sponsors, Texas A&M University, the Travel Technology Association, and Invest Texas Council, Texas Employers for Insurance Reform, and Lone Star College. We will see you all next week. You